You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, Jen Doan, Stéphanie Morin-Robert, and Joanie Farrand. Stay tuned, we're going to move you. Happy birthday to us. It's the one-year anniversary of Dirty Feet and, of course, of No More Radio. Uh, we're taking today's episode to celebrate the fact that we've been doing this for a year straight. We've released to you one episode a week all about dance, speaking to choreographers and dancers, talking about issues in the world, having uh, roundtable discussions, all concerned with dance and movement and performing arts here on the Dirty Feet podcast. We've been doing it for a year straight since uh, we started in uh, November of 2012. And here we are a year later, uh, still going strong. There's been a shift in the team since then. And we are uh, just taking a moment to honor the team that we've had and the team that we are moving forward with. So we have gathered uh, a beautiful group of people here today, uh, all people who have passion for dance, who have experience in the industry, and who've shared uh, that experience and knowledge with us in the form of, of hosting the Dirty Feet podcast uh, over the past year. So uh, we want to take the time to say, uh, who are these people? And thank you. And, and what is it about dance that moves you? And, and have a little discussion on that topic. And uh, why this is important to us, this podcast, Dirty Feet, just talking, having a dialogue about dance and inspiring inquiry about choreography and dance and performing arts and movement. So I am Alison Burns, and I am one of the co-founders of the Dirty Feet podcast. And I want to introduce to you now, if you, uh, if you are a new listener, uh, I want to introduce to you the other uh, co-founders of the Dirty Feet podcast and uh, one of our new hosts. So we have uh, to my left here... J.D. Papillon, Jean-Daniel Papillon. One of the other co-founders, um, really, really happy to see all of the experiences that we've had to do and enjoy during that year. And to my left is... Stéphanie Morin-Robert, and um, I am a new addition to the team. I think this is maybe my fourth recording. I had the pleasure of participating and being on the show, so seeing it from the other uh, side of the world as, a, as an artist and also... Designed the logo, yeah. Hi, this is Jen Doan. Uh, I'm also, I was also one of the co-founders as well when Dirty Feet started last year, and I'm here back as a guest, I guess, to see what you guys have done for the last year and catch up because uh, I left the show at the end of probably March of this year to pursue some of my own endeavors. But I'm really happy to be back and, and see what all this, you know, has been built up to. And lastly, this is uh, Joanie Farrin. I've been on board, again, I guess as a co-founder as well, of the Dirty Feet podcast. And now moving on to other swell things, um, but very proud of uh, having been part of this first year, because I can only see this uh, podcast go up. I'm excited to, about what's coming up, for sure. 
Great. So maybe we've shaken the nerves off uh, a little bit. I know we're a little shy about talking about ourselves, but uh, here we go. So a little bit of history for y'all. Uh, JD and I were actually at the Movement Museum um, on at, with Jen Doan on CKUT um, previous to the, the founding of this podcast. And so we participated uh, on that show for uh, varied amounts of years. I think I was there for three, JD maybe a few months, a few months, and uh, Jen maybe maybe two years with Movement Museum? At least a year and a half. At least a year and a half. two years. Cool. So that's kind of where we got our passion started, the three of us. And uh, Joanie Ferrand came on board when we started, uh, when we launched and moved over to uh, No More Radio and started the Dirty Feet podcast for further independence and uh, and just, yeah, a little bit more flexibility in our programming and our timing. And uh, it's been so far an all-around good time. So my purpose today is I want the world to know these people that I work with because I think you guys are so brilliant. And I think we spend so much time concentrating on our guests who are amazing people. And I think it would be nice for our listeners to know who we are as interviewers coming into this, what our perspective is. Uh, If you don't mind, JD, I'd like to speak with you first. You are Concordia Contemporary Dance graduate recently, um, and you have a a history in English uh, literature before that even. So you're a man of many many talents, and uh, as I'm sure our listeners already know, you're very thoughtful, and you have a lot of... um, introspection and kind of a more academic uh, look at things. And I I wonder if you could just extrapolate a little bit on this kind of mixed history you have with with kind of literature, academia, and dance, and why you switched into dance. Wow. Okay. Basically, yeah, my first love was literature. It was creative writing. I did my bachelor's at McGill in English. and I knew nothing about dance whatsoever. After that, I did some more studies. I did the creative uh, writing certificate at UQAM. And basically dance, I remember my, my first experience with dance, going to see shows with uh, a friend of mine. And I remember just how visceral the experience was. And I think that that's what a lot of people who love dance, who truly love dance, love the most about it. It's that whether it's something that you're watching or doing, it always comes down to that that gut feeling that you get when you dance. There's something so uh, empathetic about movement and about the kinetic energy that's being released. And I, that, that just hit me. That's so different from writing, right? Because writing, it's all in your head and when you're moving, when you're seeing someone move. So that's really what gripped me. And when I was doing my certificate in creative writing at uh, UQAM, I took an intro to contemporary dance class. And I remember my one of my last classes going to the UQAM building where the UQAM School of Dance is and just being so depressed to some extent that this was going to be my last time going into a studio, get ready and take a dance class that I decided to go into a dance program. So I took a year to just train and then I did the additions and then I got into both UQAM and Concordia, decided to go to Concordia for var- various reasons. And at Concordia, I had the chance to be motivated by some really fantastic people, namely Philip Spohr and um, Sylvie Pernet-Raymond, who were both really into the the more academic thinking about dance, really about discussing dance. And I really, I think they're the people who most motivated me into into doing something like this, because I feel that 
Dance has many qualities, but one that we often forget is just how important it is to discuss this, how important it is to to talk about all all of the intricacies that go into creating physical works. It's not just about doing pretty movement that people look at and, oh, that looks nice. Dancers are artists, they're athletes, they're also thinkers. And I feel that with with what we're doing here and with what other people are doing also uh we get we give the chance to creators to talk about it and i think that that this is what to me what that's what dirty feet is that dance is about the community and it's about the sharing of ideas If I can take now the opportunity to talk to uh, Jen Doan, it's been a while since you've been on the show, but you were on Movement Museum for a while, as we already said, and you did uh, have the motivation to start Dirty Feet with us. And I, I know the passion is still in your heart. The time is not, in, however, in your schedule. Uh, can you let us know? I know you're also a Concordia graduate, and you're you're currently active in your own creative process uh, with Ted Strauss and uh, Womi Myth, creating dance and music collaborations. Perhaps to scale it back and talk about your history, I know that you also started uh, training late in dance and kind of how that fire got lit for you. Ooh, okay, how did dance begin for me? I'll make it short and brief, but I didn't start... I took my very first dance class when I was in grade 12, and I just loved it. Um, but I've always been a very kinesthetic child, like always running around and, you know, just like just when I remember my childhood, like I was like just always moving and had to be active. So I discovered dance class in grade 12, and I loved hip hop. So I started like just getting into it and took my first grade 10 dance class in grade 12. And then I went to university and basically went into university as a business student. I was very like driven in that way. And then um, lots of things happened in my life and my parents went through a really crazy divorce. And it kind of just like shattered my paradigm in life. And I was just like, what? You know, I was questioning so many things. Um, and I basically went from a 3.8 GPA student in business to failing all of my classes in one semester. And um, the only thing that kept me going to school and kept me moving was my introduction to dance classes that I took in my drama classes. So that was really like a huge kind of like shift for me and I was like okay what is this you know this actually is giving me a little bit of life because I was it's quite down in that time in my life when I failed all my classes and everything was chaotic and that I think was the light that drew me into dance and into being creative and into moving and you know after taking some time to really recover and find my 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 way again I decided I was like okay this is it well I went from business to kinesiology to then just being like, no, I'm going to go for contemporary dance. So I got my, you know, technique under my belt, audition, got in. And from there, you know, I started dance at the University of Calgary, did my thing, got really involved, got really passionate, and then um, went to Montreal for 10 days. And I realized that they had a university that had a contemporary dance choreography program. And I was like, oh, my God. So I actually came to Montreal to do an exchange for one year. And I remember after my first, at the end of my first semester, I went up to one of my teachers, Michael Montanero, who, you know, is an amazing man. And I was like, Michael, I can't go back to Calgary. And he's like, don't. And I was like, okay. So I stayed and I'm so glad that I did. So I, I transferred and I finished my degree. And, and yeah, that's really how dance started for me. And contemporary dance specifically was just something that drew me into it because it allowed me as like, someone who was older starting dance 
to like be expressive and to be creative and to be like my to, to develop my own voice so i just fell in love with it right away and got right into it and just was like that's it so yeah now i'm still in montreal and you know still involved in creating and all of that and and anyways that that's basically how dance started for me that's what drew me into it and what was your motivation to uh to start with movement museum and to and to help with 30 feet to uh, founding that Oh, so with Movement Museum, just the idea of getting to like, well, you know, be on the radio and like be part of a different part of the dance community. It's really a different part, like being someone, you know, that we get to meet all these artists and interview them and pick their brains and learn from them. That was like really exciting. And also getting a chance to like be able to go and see shows and have access to that. It was just like a whole different approach. And then Dirty Feet, um, you know, when you approached me, I was like, yeah, I totally want to do this. This is a great idea to, to branch out and to really grow this because it was also unique. We didn't have, we don't have a lot of um, podcasts and radio programs that just talk about dance. So I always just like things that, you know, kind of new and pushing the boundary. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And our third co-founder over here, Joanie Farrand, you also hail from Concordia University. There is a trend here. We did have to meet at one point. Um, and you, you've trained at CEGEP and you've trained at university in dance. And I, I've always considered you a dance history buff. I know <laughs> that you, you seem to know all the names and you were very active in searching out videos and kind of researching dance. And, and uh, I think that's such an asset that you have a, a real good awareness of how to relate things to, to the history of dance and where they come from and where their inspirations are and I actually don't know where you started dancing and why you started dancing and I'd love to hear it mm, it's interesting because I listening to JD and Jen I, I hear things that I already knew and I hear things that I didn't know I think that I've I think that you guys have started in a more pragmatic way your studies more practical way maybe business literature slightly and then ventured off to dance I guess as a as a liberation of some sort or something that was just calling you. I started the other way around, dance, started dancing. I started dancing late as well. After high school, I went into a drama program in CIGEP, found that it was, uh, I was too scared to audition for actor roles, went into dance just because I, I, had, to, I had to keep this artistic approach uh, or had to keep diving in it. Did the décadence, did the back en dance, and I think afterwards, tried it but I felt like I needed something more safe and I guess more more practical do you know what I mean when I say I, I kind of went the opposite way I was driven by it but eventually I had to go back to something yeah something more more pra pragmatic I guess I also find that my my strongest quality is my determination I find that when I want something I, I go get it I'll have it so deep down if I'm not dancing actively right now it's because it's not something that I really wanted for me, this podcast was, I guess, a way of keeping a foot in the door to kind of see uh, where things would lead, where things would go. And I ended up dancing last summer, which I didn't expect to do. And I really enjoyed that. And it, it got me thinking that maybe even if I'm not involved, I'm still open to it. And who knows what could happen? You know, and in the past year, I've seen and witnessed the struggles, the highs, the lows of this, um, of the practice of the, uh, the art form and the, and the people involved in it. And I have really thought, and I think that I've made the right choice in my personal, um, 
uh, prospects, what I've been doing, studying translation, graduating, and just priorities change for everyone from year to year. You have to question what you want and how to go get it. And um, I guess that's why in the end, unfortunately, I have to, to leave the podcast, but not leave forever, I guess, just depart on something else. And eventually, who knows what's going to drive me back. It, it makes me think of that episode we had uh, quite a while back about, I think it was about the party trad with uh, that gentleman from the townships and, and his talking about, it. we started a discussion about how it's not all or nothing and how about how social dance is about kind of, you, you, you're not either a dancer or not a dancer, that there's there you can enjoy dance and not make it your entire life and that there needs to be more of that because we're making, we're alienating people and making people shy to move. That's right. I find that if you sometimes if you can't choreograph, then maybe you dance. And if you can't dance, then maybe you teach it a little bit. Or maybe you go on a podcast and talk about dance and talk to dancers and initiate any any spark, any little thing um, that can keep you going. Like you say, it's not always black or white. There's this little gray area where I find that you can still follow your passion. All right. Before we get too introspective, guys, let's uh, finish these introductions here. We also have Stephanie Moray-Robert, who is a new addition, um, who's also from Concordia. And uh, we, we've introduced her recently with a bit of a bio. Uh, so, I mean, if you could do a roundup of where you come from, but I, would, I think we would focus, too, on kind of uh, your interest in talking about dance. So I guess I've, I've always had this need to to move and, and I could kind of relate to what Jen said, whether it was actually dance or, or, or running or playing outside or, or, you know, throwing myself down the stairs or like always just wanted the thrill of being in movement and, and not being stationary. And I think that, um, whether it's in my work or whether I'm guiding other people to move as a choreographer, whether I'm moving myself in my own work or in other people's work, I th- feel that that talking about it and and researching other people who who are passionate about something that that's so close to home for me uh, really helps me kind of open open my my focus to to not just focusing on what I'm doing because it's really easy to kind of get into your own projects and and not go see other shows or not you know not participate in in other um, activities or not be a part of another community and you're kind of you have to focus so hard on your work to make something happen because most most of us as choreographers we're also dealing with the you know administrative side of things and and the grant applications and booking shows and managing tours and there's just there's so much that we're doing um, that we kind of get caught up in our own life so I feel like on this podcast it kind of forces me and I say forces me because it is something that forces me to look into other people's processes and other people's just paths how how they got where they are where they're going next and and I feel like it's it's a very inspiring thing and it helps it helps me figure things out not only in my own work but also I think it just helps us grow. I think questioning anything, whether it's your own work or other people's work, is uh, helps you. Helps you. It always comes back to. So I guess it's a pretty selfish thing. It's like it forces me to get outside of my own process, of my own ideas, of my own background or, or choreographies. It it really helps me open my eyes to to that. I, every time I say open my eyes, I feel like I shouldn't say that, but yeah. 
I totally know what you mean by forces you too. I mean, currently you have a, a rehearsal director running your rehearsal for you when you're <laughs> when you're taking the active choice to be here today, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. And it's 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 and just that decision is was the hardest thing, you know, to have somebody else um, look after my rehearsals. I would have never even dreamed of having one that opportunity because somebody willing to do that and interested in in my work in that way to kind of help it grow. But also a trust issue, right, of, of how much you want people involved in your work and how much you want them to to have a say or have – anyway, it's, it's a big learning process. And I think it's, it's a lot to juggle a lot of projects, but there's also something really magical about it because I don't think I wouldn't – I wouldn't have a rehearsal director if I wasn't doing this. And having a rehearsal director is going to help me in so many ways. And something else that uh, I would like to point out is that you you have a lot of uh, you sought out a lot of opportunities to to learn on the administrative side of things. You've worked with Body Slam on the administrative side. You've also been uh, artist liaison for the Fringe Festival a couple years now. And yeah, perhaps you could just extrapolate on that side of your of what you do. Yeah, um, I I feel like in any project there's this there's always these opportunities to. If it's not making money, which I guess making money with dance opportunities is pretty rare, but if it's if it's not uh, just the opportunity to perform, it's also the opportunity to learn how to kind of manage or whether it's rehearsal schedules or bookings or dealing with different venues or um, so through Body Slam, I was able to apply uh, kind of that help. You know, I was a part of the collective and was performing, and um, but to also be able to to help with my expertise as an administrative kind of more business person. And it's, and it's the way I was raised. I mean, both my mother and father are, are business people. They owned their own businesses. So I think that's probably where that comes from. But I've learned a lot. In, and I think even just working for the Fringe Festival, it's never about the money because it can't be because there, there isn't a lot of money involved. But there's just so much to learn. And it's all, all of these things, whether it's dance or just management i feel like it's it's something that you can apply to your life in every way in any way possible so it's been really great awesome stephanie and um now i guess the only one who hasn't uh given us her little background info is allison burns um allison now um again we are we're all concordia grads from different years but allison jen and i were from the same uh, cohort from the same uh year we spent quite a lot of time together I know Allison started dancing since she was very young, the sort of classical training, I guess. Um, but tell us more, please. No, that's right. I mean, I was very lucky that my parents were able to kind of throw me into any activity. Um, I was a girl guide, and I played the piano very badly, and I played the violin very badly, and that lasted about, uh, you know, two months each or something like that. And uh, dance stuck. Dance was something that I was like, I can keep doing this. So, yes, I started with ballet, you know, and then in, in the small studio I was in in Ottawa, kind of started doing character dance and, and uh, modern dance dance as well. And then I, oh, I went to an arts high school in Ottawa. It was Canterbury High School, uh, which is, I'm learning more and more pretty, pretty hot school because I keep running into people in the arts industry here that are, are also graduates from that high school. So I'm very proud to be a Canterbury grad. Uh, and then moving from there, after studying dance in high school, I applied to university. I was between Queens for biology or Concordia for contemporary dance. 
and I was at the orientation at Queen's University, and uh, I was asking them about uh, about dance classes. And they were like, well, there's this extracurricular dance club and uh, I was kind of asking more questions about that and telling them a bit about my history and they were like well you you could probably teach the classes <laughs> and uh, I didn't really I didn't really have any interest in that I wanted to be pushed I wanted to learn I didn't want to uh, to just maintain my my situation so I went to Concordia and to be honest I didn't know quite what I was getting myself into uh, coming especially like you were saying from a more kind of classically trained background without that kind of contemporary process uh, experience ever and it was a real uh, a real shake-up and a real experience and I, I appreciate so much that program and I feel like uh, Anybody could take could take something away from that program. It's really about learning how you think and how you work, and uh, a toolbox for for giving you places to start when you're creating. and And that is a really broad term, but when you are creating, so uh, I've really appreciated that. Uh, since then, I've really split uh, my interests between this. Uh, well, the radio show previously and now the podcast. I also work with uh, with Amy Blackmore and a whole team of people on the Bouge DC Dance Festival, where we uh, we support uh, emerging artists uh, in the field of contemporary dance, and we help them rework a piece with the help of a mentor. The whole concept of the festival is both community building and uh, mentor pairing, but we've talked about that on the podcast before, so I won't get too into it. But Jen Doan actually was one of the original um, participants in the first common space ever, along with me. And in addition to that, I'm currently dancing for Stephanie Robert. <laughs> As a, as a performer. I also have an, uh, an ongoing creative process with uh, two band members. Their band is called Faster. It's a saxophone player and singer, Kayla Milmine, and a guitarist, Brian Abbott, and myself. And that's been a real fun ride. It's been, uh, it's been quite a few years I've been working with Kayla, and just a couple of years I've been working with the two of them. And uh, that really feeds me uh, creatively at the moment. It's kind of, um, it's a funny place I've ended up creatively I mean and by ended up I mean I hope there's much more in the future but we're doing very silly things and I think it's things that we didn't necessarily have permission to do in school but that school taught me how to do well and uh, I'm really enjoying that ride right now yeah so that's what's up with me I love how you say that you didn't know what you were getting yourself into for Concordia because I feel like in a way nobody knows what you're actually getting yourself into when you take a program like that because they dig they dig so deep and it's not it's not even just about dance you know I feel like um well personally you come out of that program and you're like holy crap like I had I had no idea who I was as a person before entering this program just to say yeah it really stirs you up I'd like to go back to the history um, a bit aspect of Dirty Feet and and talk about that switch when we decided, well, first of all, it should be mentioned that this whole idea of starting Dirty Feet on the No More Radio podcast was Allison's idea. And I remember when uh, you first told us about this, about us making the jump from Movement Museum on CKUT, which, you know, was very established, which was... A, a sure thing to some extent because there was already a built-in audience. Um, there was also the possibility of people who knew nothing about dance who would just listen to us by random. And when you first got us, me, Jen, 
um, Joanny wasn't completely on board yet. And when you told us, let's do this, and it, No More Radio was not even a thing yet. It was just something that Paul Flalo was working on. And there was so much excitement that first meeting, uh, just over coffee, talking about, can we do this? Is this something that's that's safe enough to do? Should we risk losing everything we have with Movement Museum? And I, I just remember this trepidation going on uh, of, you know, like all of the potential that was behind it. I'd like to hear what Jen remembers from those days. I definitely remember our meetings at the Java U there on Sherbrooke, right, when we started talking about it. I found, I remember, and hopefully I remember correctly, that I was pretty excited about jumping into a podcast world because, you know, Movement Museum had its, like, uh, security and stability and, like, you know, things were comfortable. Like, we had a show, we had a slot, people knew us. You know, press new, you know, um, CKUT, so it was easy to access that. But I think my feeling was that, you know, this was going to give us more, like more access, more listeners. It was going to like expand much more because it was a podcast. It wasn't geographically limited. So I was pretty excited about that. And I trusted Allison because, you know, she was very passionate about it. And she was like, had this vision. And it was like, all right, this is how it's going to be. And I, I really feel good about it. And it's like, all right, let's do it. You know, I think it's going to be great because when you take risks, that's when you grow and you expand way more than when you stay in that comfortable zone. So, yeah, I think that uh, Allison really, you know, came in with a vision and it was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> I think that should lead into Allison telling us a bit about how she lived the, that move because she'd been on CKUT for a long time, for two, three years, you said. And this, this you know, you were the one being the most affected by mm -hmm. this, this new this new idea that, that you had by this, this jumping ship to some extent. So how did that come about and how did you feel going through that process? Because it was really, really letting go of something that you'd been involved with for so long. Yeah, that's fair. I think I was fed a lot from the Movement Museum experience. I think uh, I started it when I came right out of school, so it was all about continuing my education in a way. It gave me, you know, weekly homework to to research a guest. Or we were at the time we were also doing dance history segments. Uh, we were doing poetry segments. We were doing a lot of interesting stuff. Where, uh, like Joanne was saying earlier, too, it kept me in touch with what was going on when I wasn't really quite sure where I was going. But I knew I wanted to see shows. I knew I wanted to learn more about dance. So that's kind of what that was at that time. And then a little later, I ended up kind of being in charge of producing the show, which was a, which a whole new kettle of fish. And then it was less about uh, homework and more about um, producing. And that was really exciting for me. And then it ended up stagnating a little bit in, in the restriction with, with the time and also the need for content that created the space where the show wasn't 100% interesting all the time. Because if we couldn't find a guest or if our guest didn't show up, uh, we would end up talking to ourselves, which was sometimes was really great. I mean, uh, also Katie Belanger was on the show for a while. And, and she's a very smart girl. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. We could just give her a half an hour with, a, with an article about grants and just watch her go. And that would be great. But sometimes it wasn't great. Sometimes it was, uh, it was flat. And uh, I wanted more control over um, 
who we booked, how long we talked, uh, and that have no ads. I also wanted the possibility for growth, which was not possible on a, a you know a university radio station uh, where kind of the structure is set and it's set to be there. The whole point of of like shock and CKUT and and um, their whole concept is to be a stepping stone for people who are interested in communication. So there's no reason for them to grow beyond what they are because what happens is that people that produce those shows grow beyond what they are so in that sense we're kind of doing exactly what the program was set out to do is move away from that into a format where from here we can travel the show like jen was saying we can have different audiences in different cities as it's available by by podcast um so there's a lot of of interesting potential there. And I think now that we've got a year under our belt, uh, we can start looking forward and bigger and, and, and see what comes of it. I also have a question I want to sneak in uh, to Joanie because uh, because she is continuing on into the field of uh, translation and she's been doing all the Dirty Feet translation, which uh, she doesn't necessarily get credit for. So I need to make that known right now. Uh, she's also been doing a lot of translation for Bouge DC. Now, what I find really interesting about this uh and it really occurred to me clearly when I had when I had somebody ask me to look over their English version of a French um, description of a show, and it was next to impossible. Because when you're speaking about creative language, when you're speaking about my choreographic, uh, my artistic pursuit, that's really difficult to comprehend in one language, let alone two. So I wonder how th- these interests of yours are intertwined. Because that's a real asset that you are aware of kind of the language of the artistic language when you when you approach something to translate it. There's a whole other level to it. There's also this whole you need to actually understand what that person is not only trying to say, but what they're doing in a visual way. Right. Yes. You read like someone's bio and they talk about their creative process. Even for me in English, I'm like, (laughs) uh, okay, okay, okay. see what you mean. Right. Well, I'm learning a lot how a good translation is one that you can tell that it's a translation, mm-hmm. one that's written as if it was, again, written from the, the person in its mother tongue, whatever mother tongue it is. We don't know. We don't want to know. And obviously, I like to say that my field of expertise is arts and culture, um, because I have, like we all know the vocabulary, especially more and more with the podcast, people who've interviewed, the way they've talked, the way the words they've used, the sentence they've used, or the words they couldn't use to describe a piece, it, it tells a lot. And it has helped me to write um, or to translate dancers' words on yeah, their pieces and their bios, their creative process and whatnot. Which is why I'd like to translate in the field. Maybe again to, to what I've said a couple of times, but to keep a foot in the door. Um, I, I really enjoy translation. I do. I always get a little smile when I start. It's like a puzzle I have to like fix. And it's even better when I get uh, dance words or a bio I have to translate. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely thinking of uh, sending out uh, my resume to all the theater, dance companies, festivals in Montreal and Mm. elsewhere to translate whatever little piece they do for free if needed. No, not for free, really, but for... (laughs) Yeah, for those listening. Yeah. She doesn't actually want to do it for free. Go on my website, (laughs) www.traductionjp.com, then we'll talk. An interesting thing is uh, dealing with uh, 
I'm collaborating with a poet right now, and we want to have possibly a section of the show be in French. So when you're writing poetry, it's kind of very similar in that way where you can't just translate it because there's images, there's relationships between words, and even sometimes just the sound of the word. And and there are people who are, that's what they do, they're, they're poetry translators. So I think it's such an interesting thing that, you know, it's it's not just translating, it's it's very artistic and there's a sensibility that you need to, to bring forward in that kind of work. I'm so happy how, how this kind of slipped into this conversation about language because that's kind of the challenge that we're dealing with right now on a podcast. And I've said this before, but I love it when we have an, art, an articulate artist in the studio who can kind of describe their work with really clear words. And uh, and I think I think our, our guest last week really demonstrated that Anne Vanderbroek, yeah, and I, and I called her out on it because it was really uh, clear when she was talking about uh, her punctuation. She was talking about her style in such a such a expressive way. And I wonder if, I, I guess particularly Jen, Stephanie, and uh, JD, when you're working since working on the podcast, has that changed the way that you speak about your work or the way that you think about your work? because you're applying more language to dance? Yes, extremely. When we had the interview with uh, with Anne, I realized that she kind of started being like, well, I took violin classes, and, and as a joke, right, saying that this was a part of her life, but not necessarily important in this, this like interview about dance and about her work. But I realized that all of the terminology that she was using and the, the reason why we're, we had this image of what her movement was, and it was so clear because of this terminology that is so closely linked to music, whether it's... Uh, I can't think of like, like uh, I think she used the word staccato. Staccato, you know, words like that, music words. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's something that's um, it's so closely linked, right? Whether it's rhythm or texture or the way you kind of initiate a, a certain a certain section or a certain partition of the music. So it's uh, I thought that that was an interesting thing where the violin lessons weren't necessarily important, but they actually were a huge part of her vocabulary and the way that. Uh, she described her movement and talked about it. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about, just about two days ago, I went back to my notes <laughs> uh, that we got from dance school, and I was reading through it, just to get my brain stimulated in that way, because I haven't been on the radio show for, like, probably over six months, and I'm running a business right now, so my brain is mostly absorbed in that. So thinking in dance and in, in terms of linguistics or language and, and the arts has been something that I've kind of been disconnected with. And I actually now having this discussion, I was thinking about how I had to take those notes out and start reading them and kind of get my brain in that way because it is a really important stimulus for the creative process as well. And I guess we'll talk about this later, but this work that we're creating right now is also challenging me like crazy because it's taking something that's basically like a storyboard with words and narrative and characters into something that I have to create and abstract it. So there's definitely a large play of like language and words in right now that I need to, um, I just need to get a handle of that and figure out how to wrap my brain around it again to use that as a, like to stimulate the creative process for myself. And JD, has this made a difference or because of your academic kind of angle, have you always had a, a strong relationship between words and dance? I would say that even before the podcast, like even when I was in school, uh, one of the most fun I had was those classes where we would actually really delve into 
issues, like some some professors, especially such as KG Gutman, Svipaner Morgan, would really push us to talk about things and to be to be conscious uh, of the language that we would be using. So that's something that I really enjoyed. I would say that when it comes to Dirty Feet and Movement Museum, before that, the the reviews. Doing the reviews is really something that forced me to bring this into a more calculated communication that, that would really not just be about this easy discussion. You know, when you talk to someone face-to-face, it's easy. Like, if you're misunderstood, you just clarify. But when we have to write a review, we have to be as clear as possible right from the start because you won't you won't get to rectify your comments or explain them. So for me, this is really the aspect where I had to be more thoughtful about the exact language I was using, I feel. But we've been lucky. I feel that under the feet, we've had some fantastic guests. Like for, for this, what, like uh, over a year now, and even a few months before that on Movement Museum, we've had some amazing guests who just would get me so riled up with everything that they had to bring to the table. And, I, I, you know, when it gets tough coming to the studio to record this, it takes, a lot, it takes up a lot of our time. It's a lot of organization. But we have such fantastic people in Montreal who talk about dance with so much passion, such clear, concise language, but also with so much vivacity. I feel that... This is really what I get out of it. Talking about dance is fun. I mean, it's it's also frustrating at times. But I, I feel that even more than just being conscious of the language, it, it makes me realize how much the create, creators have to say. I remember talking to Nicolas Sado, who is the uh, press relationist at, at uh, La Gorée de la Danse, and he was telling me that he, to some extent he can't understand the dance world because... People in dance create a piece over a period of like one, two, three years sometimes, and then they show it for four nights in a row, and then the piece almost vanishes because it's such an ephemeral art form that, you know, we won't sell videos unless you're Wayne McGregor or something. But, you know, we we don't have much of a record of it. And when we talk about it, when we talk about Everything that happened during those those uh, three years, all of the thought process, the creators get to have a bit more say about what they did. It's not just about what's being presented on stage. And, you know, dance is also very uh, her- hermetic sometimes. It can be hard to access. It can be hard to understand. But talking about it allows us to, to go deeper into all of the that world that was building inside of the choreographers. And I think that doing this show is what it really made me realize how much creators have to say i think an important thing of that as well is that we're you know we're we're recording these podcasts not just for an audience that has this educational or very like historical background about dance who have participated in dance and who do dance it, there may be people i hope listening out there that are also just just love dance you know and, and just like to to kind of uh, witness it and and aren't necessarily a part of this whole community and movement i mean they're still a part of the community but they're not a part of the creative side of it right um so i think that there's there's an important line to draw as to how accessible the information is and and if it's really blocked off to only people who've studied it for years or who could really understand it 
I think that's something that's really important to me, not only in in the work I watch or the work I do or the, the when we talk about this. I think it's something that it's important for people to be able to relate to it in some way or, or just uh, follow. They don't have to understand everything, but I think it's important for people to to not feel that they have to have this. They don't have to have a, a university diploma or they didn't have to go to Sijep and study dance or they don't have to be a part of a company or they don't have to be a choreographer to enjoy it, to, to, to witness it, and to let it influence their lives. I'm just thinking about an experience I had a few weeks ago just regards to language and you know the way that we express ourselves. I met up with a friend about three weeks ago. He, he's an artist. He works more in visual, and he, he does a lot of 3D animation, but he, he's very much an artist at heart. And it was interesting to meet up with him because when as we, we started having conversation, I was I was realized, I thought in my head, you are such an artist. Because the way that we uh, perceive our worldview and express it and the way we, we speak about you know life and, and creative process and all that, it's very unique. It's a very like, different way where I'm comparing this because in the last you know, six months, I've been very much involved like a, as a businesswoman in that, in that thought process, in that way of life. And in meeting up with my friend again like three weeks ago, I was like, wow, you're such an artist. Like the way you articulate things, the way you express things. And it's just, it's just very unique. So that in itself, when you experience those two worlds, you're like, wow, like interesting. <laughs> it's just very interesting the way that we, we speak. And I think if we hang out with artists all the time and we're used to that, we interpret that, we understand that. But when you take yourself out of that context, you're like, oh, wow, like it's very, yeah, like I said, it's a very unique way of perceiving the world that we live in and, and, and expressing it. I see I see a little tie here into something that I wanted to bring up the idea of um is is entertainment void of artistic merit is my question when you see when you see a piece that's uh maybe on so you think you can dance or or you know the Beyonce put a ring on it video like there's some hot dancing going on there can we call that art is that because it's fun? Because it's entertaining? Is it uh, not worth our time? Because nobody's peeing in a bucket? Uh, can we not call it uh, good? I think that first we need to define like just what what does entertainment mean? What is that for each one of us? And then I'd like to actually really answer that question that you've asked. Because <laughs> I think there's this this whole scare of like once you're once you make it big and you're selling you're actually making money with it that it becomes this commercial thing and it's like are we I feel like there's this like blockage of, of us wanting to make money but thinking that we need to live our lives in this poor artistic way because that's the only way we can make raw um, authentic work so I, I feel like there's this like I feel like it has something to do with money exposure um, having whether you have a producer whether it's aired on TV and and unfortunately usually things that are more accessible um, more uh, not necessarily family friendly but entertainment friendly are things that will kind of label like oh that's that's not art I think I think it's all art I just think that people don't necessarily have the same definition of what art is and that's where the problem is well it's not a problem that's where the conflict starts it's just different mentalities different approaches and different definitions of what art actually is and what entertainment is as well Mm -hmm. yeah what is entertainment, Jen, to you? <laughs> That's a good question. I really have to think about that myself. In the meantime, um, I think, I don't know, art, entertainment, it's so, 
it's so close together. Yesterday I was watching an interview with the author of um, Eat, Pray, Love, and they asked her about the big motion picture that was done with Julia Roberts about her story and and she was like I can't like I'm you know she was very amazed and overwhelmed by how Hollywood had taken her story but she also she could also just like not listen to it not listen to the reviews or critics or the fact that Julia Roberts was portraying her in the movie she was like I'm a writer and this is what I do and if I've touched women in the world to to just do what they want to do then I've done what I've done and and she's an artist for me for doing that although entertainment has taken her not it it didn't even take her away because she doesn't care at this point but her I find her art and the entertainment that followed it is intertwined And she's still maintained to be who she is. I guess that's what it is. If you just stay who you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter you know, like uh, how popular you get, I think that essentially you are an artist and you do deserve what you have. There's a line I'd like to kind of make a link to, and, and I hate to, I feel it. Even, it's strange, even just bringing up Arcade Fire, I feel like it's a cliche thing to do <laughs> because of them kind of being big now and, 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 and all of that, like, this i feel like we have boundaries of being like if you if you read something listen to something that's popular it doesn't make it good or there's like this this whole hipster movement of that you know what i mean it's i i feel like it's it's horrible <laughs> it's really horrible i i think as long as you're doing it from a real place and you're not mm-hmm. following as long as you're creating for yourself and you're not creating Yeah, I think it just has to be real. But it's like, what's real? <laughs> I think it also comes down to the question of like, maybe not so much much what does entertainment mean and what is art, but it's also what is the quality of the entertainment? What is the quality of the artwork? Because, you know, if you really like briefly on a surface level, you think entertainment, like Hollywood movies, right? Um, entertainment or like, you know, um, pop music, entertainment. But then within that, like, I don't think we can um, separate that, some of these like larger things that we view as being popular and uh, maybe isn't as artistic um, and take strip them away of being a creative and artistic so the quality like if something is mainstream and popular like the question I think for me is like does it stimulate the imagination of the viewer um, you know does it stimulate inspiration because you know I, I came from like a really long like history of just rejecting pop arts and pop and culture and all of that and even Hollywood movies I didn't watch movies for like years and I got really back into that as a way for me to step into the world to see what people were you know absorbing into their brain and to my surprise like I discovered so many things that were so inspiring that I like rejected as being oh entertainment mm-hmm. and this is not really like art mm-hmm. um, you know for example crazy but Lady Gaga I watched a whole documentary in her and as famous she is and you know her music I don't like her music to be honest but her creativity is astounding and the fact that she has been able to touch so many people and has been so successful I think that's incredible like entertainment and artistic value at the same time and just going back to what Stephanie was saying about like money um, within the creative world I think that the more like from my point of view the more that you can reach out to people the better because art is also at the end of the day about contribution it's not about like keeping it to yourself and like you know um like you know just in that small community it's really about if you can reach more and more people and keep artistic integrity which i think is very important kudos to you you know kudos like 
be inspiring, get it out there, get paid for what you're worth because I don't think anyone wants to be living poor, but you got to develop that, you know, artistic integrity too. So anyways, I don't know. I think that, uh, yeah, it's, I think that entertainment is, can be art and there's a lot out there that is very freaking creative. We could relate all this that we've been talking the past few minutes to the burlesque episode, which was one of our very first episodes where uh, we did ask the question, does the movie burlesque with Christina Aguilera and Cher, is that really burlesque? And they were like, no, no, this is not the real burlesque. The real burlesque has a whole bunch of different body types, has women a lot more uh, willing to uh, be express passion more than express... Oh, that's actually a song in the burlesque, um, <laughs> which I love. But um, the entertainment of the movie did bring us, or the actual burlesque performers that we had at the show, the many of them that were all here, did raise awareness of uh, actually looking into what a, an art form really is after watching it on a big screen, questioning it. Like, is that really burlesque? Is it really, uh, what kind of training are they, are they doing, you know, and what, what, is, what feeds them to be what they are in the essence? We're just so used to not having money and doing things with very little budget or with no budget at all. And I feel like we got used to that and sat on that idea of being all right with it and kind of just accepting it that we've chose this pathway that doesn't make a lot of money. But I feel like that's that's where we're wrong, That the fact that we accept that and that we agree to that within ourselves when really you know it's i if you really want to make a living out of this you you could choose your lifestyle but i think there's a way of of making this into your life if you if you really push forward and change that idea of of not being able to make money with it or that it's okay that you're not getting paid or continuously doing things for free or with very little budget so it's like i think we we set ourselves up for this yeah i You're my new best friend, Stephanie. Um, <laughs> I think that, yeah, you know, like, I don't think, for me, it's not okay to be a poor artist anymore because the things that I envision, like, Ted and I are, we run a dance rock opera company called Woomy Myth, and the things that we envision in our minds, there's no way we can do it with limited funds. Like, right now, we don't have a lot of funds, but as we grow, my goal is to be able to fund our shows because in order to express the things that we... Um, envision, like I said, uh, we we need funding and we need to be get we need to get paid because there were so many years after I graduated Concordia where I put so much of my heart and sweat and blood and soul into producing shows and creating them and at the end of the 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 processes I would be basically broke like I didn't know how to pay my rent and I kind of decided I'm like that's it there's there's no more of that because I feel like what I'm doing is valid and that I do need to be, you know, rewarded for that. And no matter what, we can argue about this, money does make the world go round. We need money to do all the things we need to, right? Even, for example, this radio show, the equipment, the space, like everything requires the resources. So, yeah, I think that it's really important that we change within our own um, mindset and belief that, like, as artists, we need to be poor, I don't know how we're going to do that yet, but I think we should all band together and start shifting that paradigm because artistic work is valid for sure. It is. That's what gives us inspiration in our life. And, you know, even movies like uh, there's a lot of crap Hollywood movies out there, but there's a lot of incredibly 
brilliant movies out there. And yeah, it gives people life. It gives them hope and inspiration, allows them to see more out of life. And I think that's what art can do. And if that's, you know, valuable, we need to be paid for it. I think that it, it goes back to what Steph was saying about entertainment and about the uh, the money factor in entertainment because a lot of that that rage that is turned towards purely entertainment uh quote-unquote stuff comes from people who are working really hard on their art who are really being thoughtful about what they're doing who have trained really hard to get there and they see a lot of the governmental funding go to stuff that is innately popular that will make money anyway so there's this this divide between mm -hmm. the artists who are working really hard or creating good content good work but you know there's not as much of an audience in then so it won't attract much much funding from the public but all that f government funding goes to big movies which will make money which will bring money back to the government too but is so common denominator that it's not that hard for them to make move uh, to make money. So I think that a big part of why the entertainment industry, the pop culture, can be so harshly criticized in dance is because of this divide of dance artists having such a hard time and having to accept projects where they won't get paid because there's not going to be enough of an audience to really pay properly. It's a really hard industry, you know, between in artistic integrity and following into what the entertainment industry wants from the artist because I actually have an incredibly talented friend he's a musician he's he's from New York um, he's at a point right now in his life where um, record companies are approaching him from all over the place and when I say like like you know big record companies like he met with Dr. Dre and was talking about you know like signing with these record companies and he's under this pressure now to pump out music that the industry is like, oh, we want to hear more like this. We want like something like this, and we need it by this time. And he's like in this place where he spent so many years of his life on his own terms, on his own timing, creating music. And he's like, these guys, they don't understand that the creative process takes time. You can't just pump it out, you know, like as they're demanding. So it's really crazy because I think as artists, if we want to become bigger, and if we want to be represented or produced just as a musician or whatever, like, um, yeah, there's like this demand of keeping your integrity mm -hmm. and also giving them what they want so i think it's just like the reality of what we live in as artists um and it's like how do you manage that i think it's a it's hard i don't know it's tricky i think there's there's a lot to you know you in my mind and i think i have a lot of my you know i gotta do still a lot of work with that but um the fact of being like, well, of course, you know, you, you, you participate in projects or you run your own projects for free because you have to start that way, right? If not, you won't be doing anything at all. You won't be gaining experience, so that it has to come from somewhere. And uh, something that was really interesting when we had uh, Marie Bellin talk about, uh, when we had her on the show and, and she was talking about her experience in, in Nice and in Les Jeux de la Francophonie, and they were representing Canada and... Um, in, in a competition, representing Canada, representing dance in a competition. And, you know, we asked the question as if that changed the piece that she was bringing there, if she was adapting it, if she felt like she had to, you know, really bring it and do more tricks or do, and, and it came, it comes down to, you know, that balance of not feeling that pressure, that exterior pressure, and to continue doing what it is 
you're doing without that exterior pressure of having to impress, please, or win a competition, right? So it's it's like I, I thought that was a really interesting thing, and 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 she she did it really well, where the piece was still, you know, the creation that she applied with, and not it didn't become something else to to kind of win over the hearts of people who don't know what real contemporary dance is. And when I say real contemporary dance, I mean, I think what we see contemporary dance as. I think it also starts within the artist, too, when you create a work. And if you envision that you, like, who do you want to see this? Um, Because sometimes maybe I didn't think about that you know I was more concerned about expressing my own like feelings and the experiences that I went to in my life and I didn't really care I didn't I never considered um the audience actually when I was in school and for a long time when I was creating work and you know perhaps it's also about considering what our audience is and who we want to see this work and how we want to inspire them and that in itself could trigger you know something that would allow a greater audience to access like work that's being made I love that you brought up that point that that your tastes or your perspective on on valid dance change from when you're studying it to when you're creating it when you're watching it like it evolves as you uh, like I've seen my own tastes in dance evolve in terms of what I want to make and also what I want to see and I think that has to do with exactly what we're talking about is once you start to realize who are you making it for Uh, Do you have to keep these people in mind? And I keep thinking about these two works in opposition. Um, One was Kiss and Cry by that uh, Finland company. And it was was an amazing work that was chock full of cliches and really interesting stuff. And, And for me, that was really far on the entertainment spectrum, but still really valid and a really great show. And then like anything by Nicolas Quentin, which is like super introspective and abstract and difficult work to watch. Uh, so it seemed like really far from that entertainment uh, point, but at the same time, so strong and valuable in its own right. And how I find that extreme where Quentin is in is so, so much of a risk, so much of a because you got to go for it all the way. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't kind of, like you're saying, like we're doing in school, introspect, do your own thing, and not give a shit about what everybody else is going to see. There, that has to play, but it's so far in the realm of risk and of of unverified entertainment value that it's. I don't know how you even begin to start creating work there. I think that's also a really important process, though, to go into that place where you're like, I didn't take risks, and I'm just going to let my um, the creative spirit to unleash and, and just be like, yeah, like this is what I'm doing. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but you kind of have to go through that to allow yourself that experience and that freedom to understand that that is something that you also need to hold within as an artist. And then I think that it's also it's good to balance to consider your audience as well and what you're feeding to them. It makes me think of a really, one of my like artistic uh, choreographic heroes, um, Sidi Larby. He, has, he had a show called Babel. It was beautiful. It was amazing. It was so brilliant. But it was something that was also like creatively just intelligent, physically, like everything was amazing. But it also had an element that allowed people a window to come in. A people that, you know, may not understand uh, or or like the 
interpretive dance, you know, um, it was beautiful. It was great. And I think that's like a good balance of intelligent approach to creative process choreography dance with a window that allows anyone to come in and, and take something from it and laugh and, and, and you know, be in awe and, and be inspired. It was really beautiful. And I wanted to know, Joanie, because it was initially you and I that were having the conversation about kind of tastes changing as your situation changes. And I wonder what you have to say about that. About that. Mm-hmm. I, we did mention that before. Um, I know you guys keep looking for this uh, this work that's going to be uh, that's going to blow your mind or maybe just something that, you know, has a a work that has been very deeply researched or something that you can compare to the dozens, if not more than that, the shows that you've seen in the past year, which I have seen none or maybe one. Um, but I find myself that sometimes I just want to see dance. I just want to see something, as you say, maybe that's very open to every everybody to go and see something um, beautiful, I guess, sometimes. You know, I just want to be entertained maybe by dance and um I don't know if my maybe my taste has changed. Maybe the absence of seeing dance has made me want to go see a dance piece and enjoy it more than question and be like, oh, he thought so much about this or that. And no, I just want to, I do want to understand it, I guess, now at, where I'm at at this point um, as a spectator. Um, yeah, I do want to appreciate deeply what I see more than not appreciate it, but appreciate that I didn't appreciate it, if that makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing now is is the question whether you can fully appreciate dance or if you're stuck at this uh, criticizing or evaluating or comparing and this mindset of, of seeing so much work or doing your own work. So it's uh, I personally find it really difficult to sit through a piece and not have my brain go, oh, I love that. Like, I'm going to write this. I love this image. I'm going to write it down. Whether I could use it in photography or in writing or whether it inspires me and I'm constantly thinking of my own creative process and how I could apply it to my own or um, or just thinking about like, oh my God, I would have done that so differently. You know, it's like, or, or just being like, this is brilliant. I can never make work like this. And then you mm. come out of the show and you're completely like depressed on the ground crying. And you're like, Jesus Christ, why am I wasting my time? Like this person has already, already done everything that I want to do. You know, there's like, it's like, how do we become a spectator? How do we just witness dance without... And, and turn our brains off. And I feel like that's a difficult thing ever since I started studying dance or talking about dance. Mm. I have a very specific uh, example in mind for me of one of those moments when I was watching that and was just like so amazed by the show and just so jealous at the same time, both of the dancers for dancing something like this. Because, you know, when you see something, and you're like, oh, man, I wish I was dancing that right now. Because they're like the movement quality, the energy, the, the type of movement, whatever, it, it just resonates so much with you. And also just being like, who came up with this? Like all of the ideas I wanted to place in a piece, they've done it now. So what else can I do? So I'd like to actually hear what uh, examples for you guys of, of pieces that have done that. Because we talk a lot about ourselves, but we don't talk much about our tastes. And I think that's interesting to hear. So Steph, what Jesus. piece what piece has made you feel that way? I don't think it's a piece in particular. I always have this impression that I'm not doing the work that I want to be doing. 
um, I get really involved in my projects where they they even haunt me when I'm trying to sleep and I'm only thinking about that and applying everything that happens to me in that and it really becomes my life like when I'm I'm putting my whole life into it even though I'm not constantly in the studio working on it I bring it on the streets when I walk I so it's it's this um, I getting so involved in this one process and feeling like you need to stick to it and you can't break out of it because you're not done that project yet. So I think that's more something that's haunted me and, and seeing other work kind of triggers those other possibilities of things that you could be doing or subjects that you could be bringing forward. So um, I think that would mostly be it for me. Uh, I mean, whether it's... I, I actually went to see Passerelle Vicent uh, Count. Um, so I and the t there were three pieces in the evening and the first one was Connect the Dots um, the second one I don't remember the title but it's probably better off that way and the third one was No Fun we, we had Elen talk about it and um, I realized also the importance of of the combination of pieces and how they influence the way you're going to watch the next and the next and the way you're going to leave with this whole ensemble of everything you've seen but I I did have that feeling when I saw Elen's piece of wanting to just be a part of it and not give a fuck and just like throw myself everywhere and give the finger to the audience and like there's this this rebel side of me but yet again my work is super delicate and precious and and I'm doing the opposite of that so it's it's this struggle of of wanting to move on and do something else but I have that I always do that. I, I, I do projects and jump from a project to the next and don't let them develop. So now I'm actually developing a project and sticking with it. But I feel like I want to be somewhere else already. So I think those are my struggles. Uh, this is going to sound like a bit of a dated example, but the first time I really felt like genuine, like, depression from <laughs> from how much I enjoyed a show was when uh, I saw a work by Jerry Killian at uh, Pas des Arts The Killian Night? Yes. That you invited me to actually. Yeah, okay. It was beautiful. It was incredible. That was that was perfection on stage yes. as far as I was concerned at that moment. Big red skirts that was my favorite part. Oh, I was just, oh, anyways, oh. Sorry. Anyway, you can Google Judy Killian. Um, and, and this is what I say. It's a bit dated. It's very neoclassical. It's very straight. Um, but it's beautiful work. It's beautiful work. And in that vein, too, Amelia by uh, Edward Locke, the, the video version, not the stage version. I've, the video version also, I feel like it's just so crisp. It's so clean. Mm. It's so uh, gorgeous, the work. And a bit more recently, um, someone who's who's inspired uh, inspired me, but it, it maybe less in the way that you're talking about JD, because I don't think I have her her skills. But uh, uh, Dorian Neskanoder, who we've had on a couple times, and I, I gush a little bit when she comes on because I'm a really big fan of her work. Uh, although I don't think it's quite in the vein that I work in, but uh, it's really exciting. And uh, last but not least, uh, Political Mother by Hofe uh, Schechter. Hofe Schechter, that was. Pretty Pretty hot. Which was my pick. <laughs> I saw it uh, when it was uh, released in London, England, when I was there. And uh, yeah, that w that's my uh, quote-unquote depression piece, I guess. I mean, <laughs> but again, then again, the next day, I remember going to Pineapple Dance Studios in Covent Garden in London. I was like, I want to take a dance class. I took a pure technique class, which, you know, killed me. But uh, I never went after for another year. But that piece really blew my mind. I did see their uh, previous piece, Uprising in Montreal, did the workshop with a few dancers, and this company just blows my mind. Um, one of the first 
dance pieces I saw when I was in Cegep, uh, the good thing about that deck is that they really wanted us to go see a lot of dance pieces. They they paid for it. They gave us this awesome package with Densité back then, who was like really cheap. And I did see a piece by Roger Chena, which was, which was called um, Apricot Trees Exist. And uh, I remember it really clearly. It was at Lagora, and um, it was really good dancing. It was pure lines. And I remember it to this day. It's been almost over almost 10 years, actually, to the day that I went to see that piece. Um, one by Emmanuel Jout, also, that I saw um, a while back at Usense, which was amazing. Um, yeah. When I was at Cégep de Drummondville, we also went to see shows, and one of my first, like, real contemporary dance shows that wasn't, like, Bad Jazz de Montréal or something fancy um, was uh, Journal Intime from Cop Public, and that's also the first time I saw Ken Roy, um, on stage mm. so it was uh, I think that piece it, it always stuck on me because it was the first time I was like whoa this is this is a type of dance you know I still didn't know what contemporary dance was or, or what dance was overall what about you Jen you've been thoughtful over there um, yeah okay I have a few that just you know that come to my mind so, um, one is not dance I think it's more like it was in the the Cirque Complètement festival like a few years ago Cirque Invisible that show every time I think of it, it just blows my mind did you see it no, I uh, it was three hours of pure magic this couple um, Victoria Chaplin is actually the granddaughter of Charlie Chaplin um, and her husband and they've they've been working on this piece for 10 years and they just kept re- refining it and perfecting it and perfecting it. it was three hours of pure magic you're just like how did they do that um, and that was yeah that, mind, that, 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 that piece really inspires me and one of the things that inspired me is because when I read in the in the program, you know, um, uh, he was just talking about how you know he's he's had two shows under his belt. One he's worked on for ten years. Another one he's probably worked on another ten years. And he was like, you know, in my mind, I would wish that I had only worked on one piece and just have kept perfecting it and perfecting it. And I love that idea. It stuck with me always that like, yeah, like one piece where you just dig into it and you go deeper and you just keep refining it and it just becomes magic. And it's always inspired me. But if anyone gets a chance to see this show, it's pure magic. The things they do, you're like, oh my god, the illusions, the just the, uh, everything. It was beautiful. There's another piece that sticks in my mind, and this is actually one of those kinds of pieces that are really challenging. You either like don't like it, or you're like, whoa. I don't even know the name of the company, but it was a Brazilian company that came into um, Festival Transamérique a few years ago. Just one of those pieces where you're like, when you're watching it, you just have no idea what the heck is going on. You get confused, and you're like, ah. And then afterwards, you just it just like stimulates something that you're like, what the? How did they do that? It was crazy. Don't know what the name is. Don't know what the company. I know they're from Brazil. I, I wish I need to figure it out. But yeah, it's one of those pieces where you're like, how did they do that? How did they do it? Um, City Larby, like I've mentioned, I love that piece, Babel. I thought it was just so inspiring because it just was like, it had all ranges of emotions in there, you know, like people were laughing like from their gut and people were just in awe. Um, Crystal Pite, like I think her oh, recent God. show, Crystal Pite is just brilliant. <laughs> What was her last show? The one, the Shakespeare the one. The replica. Yes, that was amazing. Dude, for me, it's Dark Matters. That is That incredible. was a good piece, too. Crystal, my, I think she's beautiful. The pieces that, like, that, that really, yeah. that really put, like, the human, like, body on stage and just, like, like, explode, like, what you imagine is possible and the beauty of how the body moves, you know, like, Crystal Pied, even, like, Ultima Vez, like, the physicality of those dancers, it's insane. I mean, they probably injure their bodies like crazy. But I I took an Ultima Vez workshop. That hurt. Oh, 
there's a physical yeah that for me is where dance for me i just love where you're just like how the frick do they do that with their bodies it's crazy you know <laughs> that's exciting because people we don't move our bodies anymore in society so when you get to watch someone who has that power in their body and that expressivity it's just so awe-inspiring so yeah uh <laughs> we're getting all excited here like ah, we're for another hour totally running out of time <laughs> But we want to know what's up with each of us, because uh, we're all kind of launching into different uh, territories. Some scary, some exciting, some none boring. Nothing boring, but we're all going into uh, into kind of new pathways. Starting right about now, what better time than uh, a year into the Dirty Feet podcast? Because that's how everyone keeps track of time, right? Okay. <laughs> episodes, episodes. So let's take the time. Uh, let's start with you, Steph, because uh, you're, you're the newest addition to the team. Yeah. And uh, and you've also got a lot of uh, of exciting stuff going on. So let us know about that. Um. Yeah. I, I left with my lover to Paris for a few months and then um, we came back running because we hated it over there but uh, w- while I was over there it was it was kind of nice to, to back up and and just think back about Montreal about the community about dance about even the non-dance things about Montreal and why I loved it so I, I came back with this different energy of just wanting to like own it and and just do it so that that I guess that motivation really helped me and I had to step away from it to really know what I wanted. Um, So uh, when I arrived, I called a few of my favorite dancers and and, um, got involved with a body slam as well. And that's where I met Ian Ferrier, who is a collaborator of mine. And we're working on a project called uh, Pour Corps et Lumière for Body and Light. And everything's just kind of been falling into place and it's been really crazy. Uh, I'm really excited, also nervous and and um, overbooking myself, but I love that, <laughs> so it's really exciting. But when I got back from Paris, I was asked to be artist in resident mainline, so that's really been a huge, huge help. Just having space to create and research my work has been really lovely. Uh, applied for the CAF lottery uh, to tour for the Fringe and actually got picked, which is crazy. So, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to uh, New York, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Victoria, and Vancouver. Uh, originally, we were going to San Francisco to see Joanie, but uh, that's not going to work out. So we just swapped it with Vancouver. So that's happening. We're working on that show, which will be an hour-long production. So we're seven in the company. We're also, you know, fundraising and just going to make it happen and do it with whatever money we can get our hands on. And uh, in February, well, we have a show December 5th, uh, which is also a fundraising show. It's a half-hour production called L'Embarquement. And then at the end of February, we are doing uh, four shows at Tangente uh, with uh, En Programmation Double with Kimberly. So that's a thing. (laughs) I'm just telling myself one show at a time, but that will be another half-hour production that we're doing. It won't be the same one we're presenting uh, December 5th because we can't do that. (laughs) Not allowed. So, yeah, also writing uh, a one-woman show right now called Me, Myself, and I, which is a movement and monologue, and it's an intimate storytelling show about my adventures with a glass eye has a lot to do with why I got into dance and my relationships and all of that. So it's a very personal slice um, where I could kind of get deep down inside and and, uh, discover a few things about myself. So I'm working on that, and that's going to be at the end of January. 
throw us some resources. What's some sites we should go and visit? Yeah, uh, you could check us out on Twitter. It's at For Body and Light. I have stephaniemorinrobert.com. Also, forbodyandlight.org, pourcoreslumière.org, forbodyandlight.com, pourcoreslumière.com. And uh, we're working on the website now. So I guess, uh, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Bye, girl. Here, we've got another grand adventure starting over here with uh, Jaylee Papillon. You're finishing your uh, contemporary dance degree at Concordia. And uh, what's what's next for you, buddy? Wow. Um, basically, since I finished, what I've been doing mostly was uh, doing the professional classes for with RQD, uh, Circuit Est. There's a workshop in February that I'm absolutely excited for with uh, David Zambrano. So this is really where most of my energy has been going to. Uh, I've also been dancing for uh, a choreographer called Dominique Safie. So we presented two different works, one at, um, at the Sauvon Le Bain Saint-Michel Festival in the Bain Saint-Michel. So that was a fantastic opportunity to dance there. And we presented at Luff, which is a, a loft performance space. And we're still collaborating on, on new stuff together. So it's really fun to dance for her. But yeah, most of my energy has been going not towards creation, but towards, um, I feel, just training my body and finding more of what I have to say through the body. That sounds very exciting. Do you have any resources for us, uh, places we should check out uh, what's up next? Become my friends on Facebook. You've never got too many friends on Facebook. J.D.Papillon. Look me up. Actually, you can have too many. I think 5,000 is the limit. I'm far from that. Joanny Farah, you're leaving us. You're, you're going to warmer weather. Yes, I seem to be the only one who wants to get out of Montreal. Um, I've been born and raised here or in the surroundings, so unlike you, I, I want to see other, other areas. Um, but dance-related, there is this apparently awesome school in San Francisco where I'll be heading next, uh, the Center for Dance, something like that, COD, um, that I am checking out for sure, which I will tell you all about. And uh, graduating from the translation diploma at Concordia um, in a week and uh, available for all your translation and proofreading needs, shall you need it. Again, my website is uh, com. I'm on Twitter at traductionjp as well. So yeah, keep in touch. I can give her a, a very good recommendation, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Joanne is very professional and knowledgeable. And as we mentioned in the podcast, uh, you know how to use uh, creative language in translation. So, mm-hmm. I think yeah. I do. Thanks. Thanks, Alison Burns, for the consistency in your editing and recording of this podcast. I don't know. I, I hope people know, or if they don't, they should know, because, yes, we have recorded one show for 52 weeks straight, but Alison has been showing up to the show all the time when me, when I was sick, when JD was sick, she was sick, she was still showing up. She is the heart of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, me and uh, the other hosts and listeners and guests, thank you for it. Oh, thanks. Praise needed. I enjoy it. (laughs) And Jen Downs, so what's next for you in the arts field and business field? So I run a a dance rock opera company with with Ted Strauss. He's my collaborator. Uh, Right now, we are creating um, a new show. It's a sci-fi dance rock. It's based on a, a story by Philip K. Dick called Deus Array. And yeah, we actually are going to be in 
performing at the Jesus, like inside the church for Festival Accessesi. We have like a 60-hour residency also in there, which is really amazing. Um, so we're going to be performing um, our piece there. We actually have two other dancers as well, or two other performers, Maxine Sigalowitz and Karsten Kroll. And yeah, we've got a, a crazy, amazing team of collaborators. Tristan Brand, he's helping us um, create a, a photographic film for the piece. We've got, um, we have a, we're working with amazing costume designer, Sandra Chirico and Christine Kinsella is like going to be our manager, production manager. Uh, Marigold Santos, who's this incredible visual artist, is helping us create some stuff. Um, you know, Maria Simone is our rehearsal director. So we've got, we've put together this crazy team over the last couple months. Thank you to my visionary, Ted Strauss. And then we're also just got accepted to the Montreal Fringe, which is going to be really awesome. We're trying to get into Ottawa Fringe. So yeah, we're just working on that creatively. And hopefully this piece was something we're probably going to be working on for the next few years. And then just, you know, I've also stepped away from uh, a lot of the arts for the last year because I've been, uh, basically building my my business i run an herbalife uh health coaching business and just in the in the spring uh my team we've we've opened up a, a healthy lifestyle center healthy active lifestyle center downtown in montreal called fit club 24 so that's basically been consuming my life and will continue to so that's what i'm, I'm doing right now artistically uh, and you know business wise those are the two focuses in my life right now so yeah that's kind of where i'm at do you have uh, some way for people to find your Fit Club and for your Woomi oh. Myth stuff? Yeah, so Woomi Myth, uh, we have a website. It's um, Woomi Myth, which is W-O-O-M-E-M-Y-T-H dot com. And uh, Fit Club 24, so it's Fit club 24.ca for information you can find us on facebook too which is probably more exciting because we have all of our fun pictures of all the wicked stuff we get to do at our our center um and that's yeah that's it and allison burns i think you have a show in a few days oh god please no should uh, i rephrase this it's, it's it's a little bit more than a few days but i do i do uh uh so as mentioned i am working with steph on on her project i'm a dancer for, for uh, the pour corps et lumière for body and light uh and so that show goes goes up on december 5th and then uh and then bing bang boom uh the 6th 7th and 8th i'm performing with the band i mentioned earlier kayla millmine and brian abbott in the production uh faster presents the elephant in the freestanding room extended version. Uh, this was a piece that we originally created for the Fringe Festival last year at Montreal. It was a half-hour show originally. We were awarded the Freebie Award by the Freestanding Room, uh, which gave us the opportunity to remount the work uh, for free, which is awesome. So we have lengthened the piece by another uh, half hour. So it's going to be an hour-long project. It's uh, silliness, awesome music by two musicians who have a really varied style there's everything from like punk to jazz to rock to a couple other styles that they want to keep secret until the show <laughs> but it's pretty wild they do these things called collages that are just a mess of uh, of sounds that are recognizable it's it's really cute and uh, I've been working collaboratively with them. We've been, they've been like writing songs based on ideas we brainstorm together. Um, I create movement that has turned out to be very theatrical, very kind of clownish, um, almost circusy. What has come out of this, this uh, collaboration? And it's just a lot of fun. Uh, the main character is, um, 
is a little stuffed elephant. So it's uh, hence the elephant in the room. It's it's an amazing it's an amazing project. Uh, I think when creating a piece that's intended to be funny, if you're laughing a lot of her in rehearsals, that's a that's a good sign. So do come check it out. You can you can find the information at uh, fasterpresents.com or or on Facebook. Uh, we are really looking forward to presenting at the freestanding room. We've never performed there before. It's a really sweet space, uh, like Saint Laurent, just by Marianne. Uh, it's usually meant for theater so that's going to be it's going to be fun to dance and and play some some crazy music in that space that's a collaboration i hope to to continue in the future it's just been such a pleasant ride as i said i've had a longer history with with kayla and a couple years now with the two of them so it's really great then i'm also continuing my work with bouge dc the festival will go up in uh, in january so we were very excited to have our first uh, feedback session last night so the the show is well on its way to being completed and that's the um, of course i'm talking about the common space showcase which is a series of nine uh artists this year emerging choreographers that are presenting work and uh the festival is going to be 10 days long this year with uh with several shows uh the programming has not been officially launched it will be however uh on the mashup on friday that's uh, the 29th of of november they're presenting at the mashup which is the festival launch and fundraiser actually here in the space we are sitting in at the moment that's the montreal improv theater their their um studio space which is uh, 3713 Saint Laurent. It's just below Pine. So apparently my whole life uh, just exists on Saint Laurent. No, that's <laughs> not true. But uh, then the following day, of course, we're going to be presenting our uh, No More Radio first anniversary uh, event, which is going to happen again at the same spots, uh, same time, 8 p.m., Good times. Uh, there's going to be a couple dance acts. There's going to be some bands. We're going to be just celebrating uh, both the network and Dirty Feet and all the other podcasts involved with the No More Radio. Uh, and it's going to be a good time. And and at this point in time, I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank the people who've, uh, who've made this happen. In addition to J.D. Papillon, Stephanie Morin-Robert, Jen Doan, and Joanie Farrand, the team here at Dirty Feet, uh, we also want to send out a thank to Tristan Henry, who's our resident composer, who has uh, been working on the intros and outros for us since episode 44, and has also done some of the music kind of in between interviews when necessary. So if there's no credit, it was probably Tristan Henry that did it. Uh, Stephanie also designed our logo, which we're very grateful for and very proud of. Uh, we also want to thank Mark from the Montreal Improv Theatre, who is always around and always willing to help us find a cable or run one from his home if necessary. He's been very generous in both letting us use the space and uh, just being super on top of it. Um, Paula Flalo, of course, the founder of the No More Radio Network and... Uh, makes us more efficient and more professional when uh, when we don't know how to use a computer program or something like that. <laughs> it's amazing how big the team gets when you start talking about uh, everything that really happens to make, uh, to make a weekly podcast go up on air. And I'm very grateful that we have this team of people who are willing to volunteer their time to do this for us. So thank you, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate that we uh, that we have so many eager listeners. It really makes it worth us worth it for us to continue to put on the podcast when we see the numbers come back and we know that you're listening. Thank so you. thank you very much, and uh, please keep sharing. You know, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, tell your friends. 
get somebody else involved and share the love. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet est produit et animé par... Produced and hosted by... Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, Stéphanie Moret-Robert, Jen Doan, et Joanie Farah. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com, follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet, and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou... Vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes à notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.